It's great to have you here. We're uh, doing a worship series called Greater Than, and uh, this is our last week in this worship series. Uh, and uh, we've been looking over stories in the book of Acts about the Holy Spirit at work. And what happened is uh, when Jesus uh, had his earthly ministry here for three years, right before he went back up to heaven, he, uh, before he died, before he was buried and raised from the dead, he told his disciples, I'm going to send you the counselor. And the counselor is going to come, and, and through him you will do even greater things than I've been doing, which must have blown their mind because they had seen People raised from the dead. They had seen uh, uh, people be healed from diseases they'd had all their life. They'd seen uh, hundreds and thousands of people impacted. 5,000 people fed with five loaves and two fishes. I mean, they saw some amazing things happen, but Jesus says it's going to get even bigger. It's going to get even better. You're going to see greater things happen. And so we've been uh, going through the book of Acts and looking at stories in the book of Acts and uh, the way the Holy Spirit was working in the book of Acts. At the beginning of Acts, in Acts uh, chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus told his apostles this, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So he says, you're going to get power, and then you're going to be witnesses in Jerusalem, which was the city they were in, all Judea and Samaria, the surrounding community, and then to the whole ends of the earth. You're going to change the world. Which, again, this must have been mind-blowing, because these were, the Bible calls them unschooled, ordinary men, just regular people like you and me. Yet Jesus says, you're going to transform the, the world. So we're going to be talking about that today. We've, we've hit these topics uh, in this way. We did, you will be my witnesses. That was our first in this series, my view. You're greater, God is greater than my view, and that's kind of how the Holy Spirit is greater than what we can see, and He is inside us. Then we talked about myself. God is greater than myself, that God is greater than my life and, and the things that I'm caught up in and, and kind of my little, little scene. We, we talked about God is greater than my life. That was Steve talked about that la- last week. So God is, is able to, through our community to do amazing things in this city and in, in our surrounding community. And then the last one here we're talking about today is greater than my world. Uh, this is, we're going to be talking about global impact and what God can do to change the whole world through us. So it's, this is a pretty amazing topic we're going to be talking about today. You know, greater than my world, uh, you ever felt kind of like uh, overwhelmed by the world? Or like it was you against the world. Uh, I remember being in high school. Uh, those of us who are old, you remember that? Uh, I've been thinking, thinking about this some because Dustin and I have been hanging out with the teens more. We're getting involved in the teen ministry. So we've been hanging out with the teen leaders and hanging out with the teens a little bit. And we were talking this last week about some of the pressures that they face in the, in the world of, of teendom. And, uh, you know, it just made me kind of flash back and remember being a teen myself. They're talking about the stuff that they're seeing in their high school. And the stuff they're coming against, and it's just like, there's so much, it's overwhelming. They were, these teens are sharing, it's just overwhelming. And I remember feeling that. I became a disciple of Jesus right at the end of my uh, junior year of high school. I grew up in the church, but I was kind of trying to have it both ways. Like, I was trying to be a friend of the world and a friend of God, and it doesn't really work. And so I had kind of my school friends and my church friends, I was kind of hoping they wouldn't collide and everything. And, and uh, you know, it wasn't working trying to kind of... Be, do it all. And so my family moved. We moved from Pueblo, Colorado to Denver, Colorado to be a part of a, of a church that was really dynamic and growing, a part of a movement that we're going to talk about in a little bit later. And uh, I, I saw this as a fresh start for me. And I said, okay, I'm really going to be true. I'm going to really follow uh, the teaching. And, and You know, that's more than we expected. He says, that unless you give up everything you have, you can't be a Christian. This is Luke fourteen thirty-three. I mean, whoa. So this was something kind of new to me in high school going, you know, I never made that commitment. I, I, I got baptized in sixth grade, but I didn't really make a commitment to be a disciple. And so as we got involved in this other church and the discipling movement, I saw I need to give my all. I need to, to, to give my all to become a Christian. So I got baptized right there at the end of my junior year. And then my senior year was really tough. Because all the friends I'd been hanging out with at school, 
they started to get involved in more, you know, just darker stuff. And, and whereas before I could kind of, you know, be friends with them and everything, now it's like they were, you know, their parties, people were, you know, hooking up with each other and, the, and people were uh, smoking and drinking and all that stuff that happens at parties. And uh, it's like I can't go, I can't hang out with them anymore. I can't be in that environment. And at the church, there wasn't much of a teen ministry, so it was just me and a few other kids. So there was many Saturday nights when I was just at home by myself. And you know how that is when you're a teenager, Saturday night is like, you've got to be out there doing something. You know? and I just remember many Saturdays just being at home alone, just feeling like, I'm such a loser. But you know what it did is it gave me conviction that, you know what, I don't care if it's me against the whole world. I'm going to do what's right. I'm going to stick to my guns. I'm going to be a disciple of Jesus till I die. And that, that forged uh, some depth of conviction that's carried me through, you know, many, many years later. I graduated in 88, so that was a long time ago for the teenagers. But, uh, but it's carried me through, that conviction. And, uh, and so, you know, those times when it's us against the world, I mean, there's a scary part of that, but there's also kind of a, oh, cool, it's us against the world kind of feeling. You know, like all the movies that you see where it's impossible odds, and yet still, somehow, you know, they're able to storm the compound and, and rescue the person, or whatever it is. And, and that's, that's what we're talking about today. It's, it's overcoming the world, that God is greater than the whole world, and the power that's available to us is, is able to conquer even the world. So let's pray, and then we're going to get into the scriptures here. Let's pray. God, thank you to be able to uh, worship you. It's great just to sing together, to sing about how all over the world people are praising you. And I pray that right now you would open our eyes and help us to see that uh, the kingdom of God is so much bigger than us, so much bigger than ourselves and our lives, and just the things that we're caught up in so many times. And I pray that you give each person here a glimpse of your Holy Spirit. You give each person a glimpse of your power. And uh, Father, I pray that you would speak to us right now through the scriptures. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to be looking at Acts 11 if you want to go and be turning over there, but I want to throw a few scriptures up there before we get there. Um, at the beginning of this series, Steve uh, read this story to us from the Old Testament. And uh, it's a really cool story. Elijah was a prophet in the Old Testament. And uh, he is, he's, he's constantly, you know, he's declaring God's message. And God's message is coming in, in, in direct confrontation with the, the, the government of his country. The king was an evil king. And so the king didn't like Elijah. The king wanted to do a silence Elisha. And so the king says, I'm going to take this guy out. I'm going to get rid of this guy. And so he sends some soldiers to go capture Elisha. Now, if you think, I think about myself, you know, if the government wanted to take me out nowadays, you know, they, they probably wouldn't, they would just have to send one agent. <laughs> you know, they would just have to send one police officer. They wouldn't have to do a lot. But this king, maybe for Steve, they might have to send, you know, five or six, because Steve's pretty big and pretty burly. But, <laughs> but for Elisha, the king is like, okay, I want to take this guy out. So he, he doesn't send five soldiers. He doesn't send seven soldiers. It says he sends like a whole army with horses and chariots. Why did they need the chariots? I mean, really, this is an old prophet. So the, this whole, so, so you picture Elisha's in this little community, this little city, and he's surrounded by all these horses and chariots. Of the whole, it says a, a strong force, the Bible calls it. So there's a strong force that comes. And Elijah's servant, it's just him and his servant living in this, in this house, and his servant starts freaking out. And, 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 he, and he's stressing majorly, and oh my gosh, here's the king. He's, and so Elisha says this prayer. It's on the screen here. Elisha says to this, Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are greater than those who are with them. You know, at that moment, the, the servant's like, uh, what? This guy's lost it. But it says, Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked around and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So you picture, you know, there's the horses and chariots of the king and then surrounding them in all the hills, there's these horses of chariots and of chariots of fire, God's army. It's so much greater than this little king and his army. And so this is the, 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 my prayer today, that our eyes would be open, that God is so much bigger, God is so much broader, his plan is so much bigger than, than the forces that we face around us. Because all of us can relate to what I was sharing about being a teen in high school, where it's like I feel overwhelmed by the forces around me. Or, or maybe it's the forces within me. You know, my own sinful nature, it's overwhelming to me. 
the way I keep stumbling, the way I keep falling, or, or the hardships I'm going through. It's overwhelming. My financial difficulties, my relationship difficulties, uh, my, my health situation. We're, we're facing a lot of health problems in our household. The car has been sick for a really long time. You know, it's just, there's this, it just brings all this pressure. And so we can feel overwhelmed by the forces around us. And yet, you know, if we open our eyes, God is so much bigger. The forces that are on his side are so much greater than those who are with them. Uh, you know, Jesus said this, In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Isn't that encouraging? You know, that Jesus has overcome the world. I mean, you think about it, he was nobody. Even his own religious community, even his own, like the leaders of his church, they thought, this guy is nobody. Nobody, nothing good comes from Nazareth. The, the, the prophet's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. They, they didn't even look to research where Jesus really was actually born, but they just wrote him off. He's nobody. He's a loser. He, you know, let's get rid of him. The, the, they, they said, we've got to kill him and, and rescue the, the, the state of Israel because the Romans are going to ruin, the, they're going to ruin our situation with the Romans, these, these rabble-rousers. And so, you know, Jesus had nobody in the establishment on his side, and yet he overcame the whole world. And he says, take heart. You're going to have trouble. You're going to have hardship. Things are not going to be easy sometimes, but I've overcome the world. And John, his followers, said this, 1 John 4. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who's in the world. You know, there is a spiritual being that rules the world. Uh, Paul said it. John said it. Jesus said that would happen. The prince of this world, he called him. And yet the Holy Spirit in us is so much more powerful. I was looking at a few videos online. There's all kinds of videos online about how Beyonce is possessed and Jay-Z is possessed. And, you know, and you can see in her eyes and this and that, you know, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, who's the rapper? T-Pain is possessed. And, you know, you can see it in his. Maybe they are. I don't know. It's all, all, these, all these famous people sold their soul to the devil. Justin Bieber sold his soul to the devil and all this stuff. You know, there's a lot of stuff about that. And, and you know what? It's, it's probably true, but... I don't have to worry about that. I don't have to worry about Beyonce. I don't have to worry about Jay-Z. I don't have to worry about Justin Bieber. Thank goodness, Lord. Because John says, the one who is in me is greater than the one who is in the world. It doesn't matter if everybody around me sells their soul to the devil. The Holy Spirit is so much more powerful than the devil. I mean, every time Jesus comes up against someone possessed by a demon, I mean, even a guy who is so strong he could break iron chains... You ever see Jesus get afraid? Oh, no, this guy has, he can break iron chains. Uh, let's tread lightly. No, they're always, he just walks right in and they, they just, they tremble. Lord, please don't send us into the abyss. Remember that? They're just scared to death of him. Why? Because he's so much more powerful than the demonic forces. Satan tries to get us to think, oh, I'm just wimpy and oh, we're just wimpy. And No, no, no. The one who's in you is greater than the one who's in the world. God can do anything. Amen? All right, Acts 11. Let's turn there. And uh, we're going to pick up where Steve left off uh, last week when he was talking about how Stephen was killed for his faith. It says, Now those who've been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. So this is, uh, this is a little several years into the ministry of, uh, of Jesus. After Jesus has died, he's risen from the dead, he, he ascended to heaven, and then the gospel starts spreading there. But it's mostly just in Jerusalem. And, but the church is growing. There's thousands of people in the church in Jerusalem. They're coming against the authorities in many, many different instances there in the, in the early chapters of Acts. And, uh, and Stephen, eventually one of the, one of the main uh, leaders there, he's one of the deacons in the church. He's, he's a prominent man. He's a great man, says, full of the Holy Spirit. He just takes it right, he takes the fight right to the religious leaders. And, uh, you know, he, 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 it's a great uh, sermon that he preaches uh, about how God has been working through the ages. And then he's... He's telling the religious leaders, you always resist the Holy Spirit. And he just, he just you know, lets them have it. And I, I don't think it was just because he was angry. I think he was hoping to turn some of them. And who knows, maybe some of them turned. But anyway, they got so mad, it says they gnashed their teeth at him, and they rushed at him, and they hit him with rocks until he died. They stoned him. So he's di- he dies. Saul was there. Saul, who becomes Paul, was there. He saw this happen. 
And so that must have had a huge impact on him the rest of his life. But anyway, with that, with what happened to Stephen, there was a persecution that broke out. We don't know much about it other than this verse here, but it's kind of like a, a tipping point where, okay, this just sparks a fire. And we've seen that in, in different political situations where one thing happened. That whole Arab Spring, remember that? Last year, right? Last spring. All of that started from one guy who was so, one, one business owner who was so distraught he set himself on fire. And, and that just sparked this and then that and that, it just started this revolution that went from country to country to country. And this huge thing all started with this one spark. And, and that's kind of what happened here with persecution. This thing that happened with Stephen, suddenly all kinds of people are persecuting the Christians. You know, they've been up to this point, they've been like, I can't stand these people, but I'm not going to do anything about it. Now they're like, now they're persecuting them. And so all these disciples, and we don't know their names, and that's, that's an important point that we're going to talk about. We don't know their names, we don't know much about them, but we know that they were scattered by the persecution. So imagine yourself, you, you're in Jerusalem, you've got a situation going and things are good, and then now you've got to flee from the city because of persecution. I mean, that's a stressful situation to be in, isn't it? It's, uh, you know, it's, uh, the future is unclear, you don't know what's going on, and yet it says that they spread the message as they went. And here, here's a map, if you can see it on the screen. Uh, Judea is down here at the bottom. This is Jerusalem. Can you see my pointer there? Okay, so this is Jerusalem. This is the, the Dead Sea. This is the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus' whole ministry was just here. He was from Nazareth, which is right about there. And then his ministry was mostly in Galilee, which is you know the, the surrounding shoreline of Galilee there. And then he would go down to Jerusalem sometimes, which is down here. And he, he, you know, those were his final days down there. And he had many times back and forth. Samaria is right here in the middle. So when he talks about Samaritans a lot, you can imagine he grew up, you know, going back and forth between Nazareth and Jerusalem uh, for holidays and, and festivals and all that. He grew up going through Samaria. So he knew the Samaritans. So anyway, back to this point. So the, here's the city of Jerusalem. The, the disciples are there. And it says some of them from Cyprus and Cilicia. So these guys are from here, but they're in Jerusalem. So they're scattered by the persecution. So they head up, and it says they went as far as Phoenicia, Syria, Antioch. They start, they're talking to Jews, but some of the guys from Cilicia and Cyprus, they end up here in Antioch, and they start talking to non-Jews. Now this is, this is big because there was a tradition that Jews do not speak with non-Jews. You don't have anything to do with them. And so that became a controversy in the, in the early church. And it's funny because even though, the, throughout, if you read the Old Testament, full of prophecies about how God's name would be great among the nations, like that song we just sang. That, that this is for all people, that, that, that uh, all nations will be blessed through you. Uh, Jesus, God told that to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. Jesus told his followers, go to all nations and make disciples. But it just kind of didn't get through their thick skull. You know, it just didn't, it just didn't, you ever, are you ever like that? I know I'm like that sometimes. God has to tell me something about 40 times before, oh, so that's kind of how it was with the apostles. They just didn't get it. So they, they, don't, they don't go on a mission trip to all nations. They just stay there in Jerusalem, and they're only talking to Jews. These are the leaders. They're only talking to Jews. Only Jews are becoming Christians, and they just, this is just a Jewish movement. But these ordinary brothers and sisters, we don't know their names. We don't know much about them other than that they were on the run from persecution. God used them to start expanding the shoreline of the kingdom of God, to start you know, expanding the boundaries, that, that they start talking to people who aren't Jewish. They're in that city of Antioch, which is right up there. And that was a very prominent Greek city. It was, it was not, a, not a Jewish city. It was, a, it was a, a, a lot of Greek influence there. Okay, so they start talking to them there, and let's pick up back where we were reading. It says, News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the grace of God, saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. A great number of people were brought to the Lord. So Barnabas is a, is a guy uh, that's a, a part of the church in Jerusalem, a prominent guy in Acts 4. He sells a field that he owned and he gave the money to the church to be able to help, help people and help the poor and, and, and build the church there. Uh, he, he, Barnabas is actually his nickname. Bar means son. Nabus means encouragement. He was the son of encouragement. This guy is so encouraging. It's like encouragement gave birth to him. You know, he's just so encouraging. So that's who Barnabas was. He was from Cyprus, which you see that island up there. But he was in Jerusalem. So they need somebody. That they're hearing all these people are becoming Christians in Antioch. Jerusalem's hearing this. The leadership is hearing this. They go, we, we should check this out and see what's up. So let's send Barnabas, because he's from Cyprus. 
These are kind of his peeps right there. So they send Barnabas up there, and Barnabas sees, wow, this is incredible. All these people are becoming Christians. Okay, then verse 25. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. When he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. So see up here, Tarsus, this is where Saul is from. He's a citizen of the Roman Empire. He was a Jew of Jews, super, super Jewish. So he was in, in Jerusalem a lot, but this is where he's from. And so Saul, uh, Saul and who becomes Paul, and Barnabas had some interaction earlier where everybody was afraid of him. They thought he didn't really become a Christian because this guy was killing Christians. And, and Steve talked about him last week as well. And so they didn't believe he was really a Christian. So Barnabas kind of helped him out and brought him in and kind of vouched for him. And, and so uh, Saul was able to interact with the apostles and, and get the well, Okay, this is a guy. He really is a Christian. But he's up there in Tarsus. He went back to his hometown. Who knows? He might have stayed there forever if it hadn't been for Barnabas kind of nudging him a little bit. Don't we all need somebody nudging us sometimes? Need a godly man or woman in our life kind of pulling us out of our funk or whatever we are. Uh, so, so Barnabas gets him and says, hey, there's a lot of stuff going on in Antioch. You've got to come over here to Antioch with me, see what's going on. And we need your help. You're a great teacher. You know, Jewish, you, you, you're a Jew of Jews, but you also know the Greek stuff. So he gets him and he brings him to Antioch. And so then this church just blows up. It becomes 10,000 disciples, uh, historians estimate, eventually, probably not right, right at this point, but it, it becomes a real prominent church. And there's a whole, there's elders there. There's a whole uh, a gang of teachers there, uh, Saul and Barnabas being a couple of them. And so all of this starts, uh, and, it, and it becomes a launch pad for missions. Saul and Barnabas, the Holy Spirit says, I want you to send out Saul and Barnabas, and they end up out, out going out. And then I want to sh- show you on screen how this expands. So from there, this is Paul's ministry. So he and the, the green is the first missionary journey. The red is the second missionary journey. But again, remember this. Jesus' ministry with his disciples was here. Right? Galilee. Here, here, here. And, and Jesus told his disciples, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. That's here. Judea and Samaria. That's here. And to the ends of the earth. And so the gospel spreads to all these communities, all these cities that we read about in the rest of the Bible. Um, and it all happened because... These ordinary brothers and sisters were willing to not shrink back in their faith. And they spread the message, even though they were on the run from persecution. If they had never done that, if they hadn't reached those people in Antioch, probably Paul never would have ended up in Antioch. If Paul had never ended up in Antioch, never gotten together with Barnabas, he probably never would have gone on these missionary journeys. If Paul had never gone on these missionary journeys, would we even be here? I mean, God might have had another plan and he always, you know, God is bigger than all this. But to me, it's encouraging that God does amazing things when ordinary people don't shrink back in their faith. Just people, we don't even know their names, but because they stood up for what's right, all the world was impacted. And you see Jesus's vision becoming reality that from Jerusalem to Judea to the ends of the earth, this was kind of, this was majorly expanding into the Roman Empire. Uh, so I have one point today. Fight the world to win the world. Fight the world to win the world. What I mean is fight the world locally. Fight the world in your own life. Fight the worldly pressures around you. Fight the, the world trying to, to, to drag you down, trying to get you to compromise your faith. Because if you do, if just like these unnamed brothers and sisters, if you don't compromise, if you stand up for what's right... Even those individual daily decisions that you make to make Jesus Lord again and to stand up for what's right, that won't have global impact collectively. That's the way God works as it spreads that you fight the world locally to win the world globally. So I want to I want to give you a little bit of, of, uh, of a background of what happened next. Um, they they uh, and I'm going to try to give you a th- a 2000 years of church history in 10 minutes here. OK, so just. Stick with me, but don't feel like you got to take notes or anything. This is just to give you a mental picture of what, what God did. So from that map, uh, I, I showed you uh, the gospel continues to spread. And, and the, the apostles, remember I said they just stayed in Jerusalem? What's cool is that God used the, these brothers and sisters that, that uh, went to Antioch and started that there. And then God used Paul and his ministry to kind of spur the apostles to action, the rest of the apostles to action. And so in the book of Acts, we don't read about what they did, went and did. And that's because the purpose of the book of Acts is not to explain everything about the history of the church 
in, in, in the early first century. It's really a testimony to the validity of the Gentile ministry. So, so it, you know, the, the book of Acts, is, it's all the apostles, and then it gets to Paul, and then it just kind of follows Paul from there. You ever notice that? It just kind of follows Paul's story. And so it ends with Paul in Rome under house arrest, but he's still preaching the word, and he's planted all these churches. But what happened, historically, we know that, like, for example, even in the Bible, uh, from, from some of the writing, you can tell that Peter was in uh, Rome. He calls it Babylon, but he ended up in Rome. So that's pretty amazing. If we just go back here again, here's a poor fisherman who grew up in Galilee, probably never left this area. He becomes the leader of a church of thousands and thousands of people in Rome, which isn't even on this map. It's over here. You know, that's pretty cool. And, and he, he ended up being martyred for his faith. He was crucified like Jesus, but he was crucified upside down because he said he didn't deserve to die like Jesus. Now, Paul died in Rome as well. He was beheaded because he was a Roman citizen, and that was uh, you know, supposedly a more humane way to kill someone. But all the rest of the apostles, according to, to records and traditions, some are legends, you can't, you know, some are not as reliable as others, but, but you know for sure that you can count on the fact that they all went, they all left, they all journeyed away, and, they, and they, they, they did what Paul did, we just don't have the complete story like we do for Paul. Does that make sense? So, for example, uh, Doubting Thomas, you know Doubting Thomas? He went to India. So you pictured, you know, Thomas planting churches in India, just like Paul did here. Thomas is planting churches in India. Philip went to, to Africa. You know, remember the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch? Maybe he went down there and reconnected with him, and, and, and the guy had already built a church there, and then they, they, they spread the church in Africa, and, and the, 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 the uh, traditional church there, they, they still trace that. They trace all this back to Philip. They're really proud of Philip. He's kind of their guy. If you go to Africa and the African disciples, there was a brother, uh, John Bashai, that used to be in the church here who's from Egypt. He's uh, Egyptian. And he, you know, he told me about this, how Philip is kind of their, their guy. And then he ended up going to Turkey after that. Um, but, uh, you know, all these guys, they went different places and, and they all died for their faith other than John, the apostle. And uh, there's a tradition or a, a story that he was boiled in oil and he didn't die. Remember how in, in, in the book of John, there was this legend that John wouldn't die. And, uh, it, you know, and, and Jesus says, if I want him to remain alive till I come back, what's that to you? He told Peter. So there was a legend that maybe John is, is immortal because they boiled him in oil and he didn't die. So he ended up on this island. They just stuck him on an island, island of Patmos, and just said, okay, we'll just leave him there. So he was in exile on, on the island of Patmos, and that, that's where he wrote the book of John. That's where he wrote uh, the book of Revelation, for sure. I'm not sure if he wrote the book of John there, but I know he wrote the book of Revelation there. So anyway, the apostles spread out, and what happens is, it's amazing. This, this is a few hundred people at the time of Jesus' death, at the time of his crucifixion. This is a few hundred people in this backwoods country of Judea. To Rome, it didn't even, didn't even you know, tip the scale on their, you know, Caesar has no idea. He's never even heard of this guy. Nobody in Rome cares about this movement at all. They're nobodies. That's why there's not much history about it in, in Rome records until later. But by the year... 112, this is amazing to me. By the year 112, let me find it here. Oh, here we go. The Roman governor in Bithynia writes to the Roman emperor Trajan that so many people are flocking to Christianity, they're leaving the temples empty. That's the year 112. Uh, Revelation was written in the 90s. Isn't that amazing? I mean, less than a hundred years, the, the, the temples are vacant because so many people are becoming Christians. And so the, the, these nobodies, God used them to, to win the, the known Roman world. Nothing like that has ever happened in history, ever before or ever since. Where you have an entire culture, the entire Roman culture is overtaken by Christianity. I mean, and it's, it's just an amazing thing. There's nothing like it ever before or ever since. It's the kingdom of God. It's the power. It's what Jesus said, that the one who is in you is greater than that which is in the world. And so what happened here, uh, just to give you a little bit of history, this is Constantine. He was around, I'm just going to give you vague dates. He was around 300-ish. And Constantine was the first quote-unquote Christian emperor. So there's a lot of debate over, was he a true Christian? Was he not a true Christian? There's, there, you know, there, there's really strong argument this side, really strong argument this side. We don't really know for sure. Uh, but he, th- this is the first time, finally, it's like an established thing that the Christianity gets so big that the emperor becomes a Christian. 
And so that seems like a great thing. Wow, we finally made our name. But what happened is the church became so apologetic that it, it ended up kind of blending in. What happens over time is, is Christianity becomes the established religion of the Roman Empire. And so you get, uh, you get certain perks if you're a Christian and, and, and if you're a Christian business. And so it kind of becomes one with the government, which is not a good thing. So then, then, uh, and then as the Roman Empire is falling in power, the, that power vacuum is kind of swept up by the quote-unquote church. And so you have just these power struggles and you know, all the stuff in the church where the church becomes, it, it becomes not the church anymore. You know, so by the 400s, 500s, 600s, it's getting darker and darker and much, much less like the church you read in the Bible. First couple hundred years or so, true blue, the persecution really kept them pure. Because if you're going to die for your faith, you know you're going to be real, right? But if, if, you, if you've got a comfortable life and you've got some perks in, with the Roman Empire because you're a Christian, then it's like there's not as much, you know, the persecution isn't refining you. So what seemed to be a great thing became the undoing of the church. And the church got so dark that, you know, by the, the Crusades is it's the year 1,000, around 1,000. I mean, it, it becomes something that's not at all like what you read in the Bible. I mean, we're talking about, these are, they are killing people in the name of Christianity. It said they killed so many people that the blood rose to the bridle of the, of the, of the horse. I mean, I don't know if that's true, but just killing Muslims. And, you know, like, this is not what you read about in the Bible. And, and horrible, horrible things that, that, that were done in the name of Christianity. And when you talk to people about Christianity, if people are, are not open or, or want to, you know, they're, they're wrestling with it, this is the stuff they point to. Look at all this horrible stuff that was done in the name of Christianity. Well, it wasn't Christianity. That's what I tell them. I said, let's read the Bible and see what real Christianity is. And you'll see. This is nothing like Christianity. And so it got so, so dark. But then, you know, God was moving. There were probably true disciples, you know, at, at that time in, in different places. We just don't know about them because it wasn't, you know, the, the main thrust of history was the church got really, really dark. And yet uh, there was, you know, God was working. And there was this guy, John Wycliffe, around 300. He translated the Bible into English. Because what had happened, and, and, and you might have grown up with this, it's like the Bible is not for normal people. Did anybody grow up that way? Okay, some of you guys know, it's changed a little bit. I remember even when I was a kid in certain churches, the whole service was in Latin. And, and, and you know, it's like, and, and you would talk to people about God reading the Bible. Oh, I don't read the Bible. That's the, that's the priest's job, you know. That's what happened over time with the churches. It became where not only was it not, you know, you weren't, expected to read the Bible. You weren't allowed to read the Bible. You weren't allowed to read. The, can you imagine that? If we were like, oh, no, no, you can't read the Bible. That's just for me and Steve and Henry. You know, that's just, it just doesn't even, it's crazy. But that's where it had gotten to. And so the Bible was, was in Latin. Most people couldn't read Latin. This guy translated it into English, but he made people so mad. He died of a stroke, but the church was so mad at him that they pulled him out of his grave and they burned him at the stake. They exhumed him from his grave and burned him at the stake because they were so because because he because he translated the Bible into English. But but he's called the morning star of the Reformation because it, it started it started things happening because people were getting the Bible in their own language. Uh, then this guy Martin Luther you've probably heard of. Uh, this is around 1500. He starts he's a big part him and Zwingli and Calvin they're a big part of the what's known as the Protestant Reformation. Protestant meaning they're protesting against the church. Catholic church, Catholic means universal. There was one church, which is, the Bible says there's one church, but it was not really the one church. And uh, it was way far off from what you read in the Bible. And so they're protesting against that, and they're trying to reform the, the Catholic church. And they, they brought about a lot of reform. Then we have, uh, a few, uh, in the, in the, I, I want to mention this because this is really interesting to me. This is the 1500s, 1600s. Uh, these guys named, known as the Anabaptists. What they were saying was that uh, you, you know, baptism is supposed to be a commitment that you make as an adult. That you you are deciding I'm going to follow Jesus, and and you're you're giving your committing your life to Him, and then you're baptized. Uh, you repent, you're baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, like what we read in Acts two. And yet, and, and yet, what was the universally held thing in the church at this time was sprinkling infants, which sprinkling is not baptism, and infants can't make any decision. So the Anabaptists were baptizing adults. And this got the church so mad uh, because 
they were and they, what they were saying was that the sprinkling I got when I was a kid that wasn't a real baptism. I'm going to be baptized for the forgiveness of my sins. I'm going to make a decision. So they were doing that, and so the, the church was trying to exterminate them, and they tried to exterminate them by drowning them. This is an old uh, because it's like, oh, you want to be baptized? How? We'll drown you. So they're drowning somebody. They're drowning a woman right here in this picture. But you know, I really consider those our brothers and sisters. I mean, these guys were persecuted. They were uh, standing up for their faith. Uh, and it's, it's strange that who they were persecuted by was the quote-unquote church. But those are the Anabaptists. Then uh, early 1800s, this is where we come in. This is, this is our heritage. You might not know this, so that's why I'm trying to kind of help you to see kind of where we come from. This is uh, a guy named Alexander Campbell. And uh, he was in the early 1800s. And him and another guy named Barton Stone, they were some of the key leaders in what became known as the Restoration Movement. You have the Reformation, that was Reform the Catholic Church. These guys were the restoration movement. What restoration movement means is we want to restore New Testament Christianity. And they came out of a time of, of the, 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 it was called the Age of Reason with uh, John Locke and some of these guys that were, it's kind of the, 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 the roots of modernism that, hey, we can figure things out. If you just study it and you look at the pattern, you can figure it out. And so that was their approach to the Bible. If we look at the Bible, that will give us the pattern for what the church is supposed to be. If you just kind of throw away all the traditions and all the extra stuff, because there was a lot of extra stuff in, in Christianity at that time, things that are not in the Bible at all. Let's just throw all that out, and let's just go with just the Bible, and we can restore New Testament Christianity. So that was their, their plan. That, that, that led to us eventually. So they, they grew rapidly in the, in the 1800s. And uh, if you go to um, you know, almost any city in America, you'll see a, a little Church of Christ. I mean, you go up to the mountains and you'll see a Church of Christ because they spread around and they, they call themselves Church of Christ or Christian churches just because that's what you read in the Bible. Uh, the church, it, it's, that's the only name. And so they were really big on only Bible. Bible names for Bible things was one of their sayings. So we're not going to call anything anything that, like they probably wouldn't like that we call it the South Bay Church because well, South Bay Church isn't in the Bible. <laughs> that's kind of how they were. So Church of Christ is our only name and we're Christians only, and, which was a good thing given the time because it had gotten so traditional. So, so that, but, but by the, uh, by the 19, early 1900s, 1940s, 1950s, the Churches of Christ overall were pretty, you know, pretty dead. I mean, most of them were older people. They're not really evangelistic. They were not, there's, ex, there's certainly exceptions because churches of Christ, one of the things they hold to is autonomy, which means no church is connected to any other church. And so each church is different. So one church might be really committed. Another church might be really dead. They kind of don't, you know, it's, a, it's kind of a hodgepodge. So in the 60s, uh, you start to see a revival amongst the churches of Christ. And, and uh, the 60s was obviously known as a social movement era. So many social movements happened in the 60s. So much social consciousness. And again, I, th- I see this as the Holy Spirit at work. You know, in these youth movements and these things happening, it be- there becomes youth movements in churches. And if you, I was talking to somebody about this the other day. They were saying how almost any movement, almost any club on campus, you can trace it all to the 60s. All of that. There were no clubs on campus before the 60s. All of that stuff traces back to that era, that, that, okay, the social movement, social consciousness kind of thing in the 60s. And so that started to happen, and so there, there started to be a campus awakening. So what, what I'm going to do now is kind of show you our history. We're going to watch a 12-minute video, and this is going to go through the 70s, 80s, and 90s, uh, and kind of what, what was going on in our churches over those decades, okay? So I'm going to turn it over to the video now. So we're going to pick it up in the 70s. Oh, there's a lighting from the window and it shines down on the streets. There's a guy standing on the corner singing that good old harmony. I grew up in the Mainline Church of Christ. I think when I went to Gainesville, uh, I really saw for the first time, I think, a level of commitment that I had not seen um, in any other church. And a real call for everybody to... Uh, deny themselves and take up their cross daily, Luke 9.23. I saw a difference in their lives. I saw both the kind of commitment that they made to Christ as well as the love they had for each other. You know, I was really, for the first time, being challenged. It, it was our life. Christianity was absolutely was our life for me to live as Christ. And in those early days, it was set in my heart that Christianity and our faith is something that's 24-7. We were getting about seven students in the fall of 1967. The 14th Street Church of Christ grew, grew rapidly, later becoming the Crossroads Church. Throughout the 70s, large numbers of young women and men trained at Crossroads were sent out into mainline churches to start campus ministries. 
Meanwhile, the Crossroads Church grew to an attendance of upwards of 1,300 and a student group well over 300. But in the 80s, the church began to slow in its growth, and most of the staff who helped build the ministry moved on to other opportunities in the ministry. Controversy. As this student movement engendered at Crossroads grew and sent out more campus ministers, controversy grew. What were these controversies centering around? Number one, did every Christian really need to be evangelistic in order to be a true Christian? Number two, lordship baptism. Did a person need to be willing to make Jesus Lord before baptism? Or was baptism to be administered without question to any believer who requested it? Campus ministry said you had to make Jesus Lord. Number three, the intensity of the relationships among the student groups became a real threat and aroused incredible suspicions and resistance in the churches where they went who wanted no one involved in their personal lives or personal business finding out what might be going on. Number four, Churches of Christ believe strongly in congregational autonomy. And when Crossroads trainees or any campus ministry guys would look back to the man who had converted and sent them into that ministry for training, discipling, this was regarded by the local elders and leaders as a direct threat of their leadership of their church. When Kip and Elena came to Boston, I believe that the friendship and unity and the family concepts was something that was falling on fertile ground because we were so desperate. People came from the mainline, they came from the Christian churches, Crossroads Campus Ministries, all the other campus ministries, bus ministries, black churches, one cuppers, all these different things. And so what was amazing was in, in Boston was being called from all these different factions, people by the Holy Spirit. Many of us had gone into the ministry from the Crossroads Church uh, with a passion and desire to plant campus ministries throughout the United States. We really believed that that was going to be the place to ultimately evangelize the world. I think when we went to Boston, uh, we gained a greater vision that uh, truly we could reach uh, all of the countries all around the world. We see the multiplication of disciples. One disciple making another disciple. But just like God's church, we see the multiplication of churches. One church multiplying another church. And I think for me personally, uh, I had an incredible increase in my faith. Uh, I think the training uh, helped, but uh, honestly, I think it was my faith that needed to grow. And being around brothers and sisters who really believed that it could happen was uh, the greatest impact for me. The challenge is for each one of us to feel the faith and the heart of these ordinary people whom God is using to do extraordinary things. God is calling each one of us and simply saying to us, I have chosen you. God clearly used the Boston Church to raise our vision of not only have a great campus ministry and a, and a good church, but a, a, a church where everyone was a, a disciple. A, a church where there weren't different standards of commitment and a vision not only to evangelize the campus but the whole world. Go to every town and place. Go to all the human race. Teach them love and teach them grace. Let God's love show on your face. During the 90s, we developed what we call the six-year plan. We had a goal to plant a church in every nation of the world where there was a city of 100,000 people or more. For the six-year plan to be completed, the ACES churches had to plant 48 different countries in Africa. Sixteen of those nations were embroiled in civil war. Many of these congregations were planted with nothing more than Bible talk leaders and a handful of disciples. I remember when we sent the church out from Mexico City and the tears that I shed knowing that we now have churches in every nation of the world, that if we want to connect our families with these churches, we now can. Que continua la conquista. In 1991, Pat and I were asked to begin the work of Hope Worldwide. God has blessed our efforts dramatically, and we now have programs 
in 80 different countries around the world. In 1991, we had our first fifth generation planting. The church in Boston sent a church to London. From London, we went to Sydney, Australia. From Australia, we went to Auckland, New Zealand. And in 1991, we planted a church in Fiji. It was then that our faith began to really be strengthened, that we would, in fact, reach all nations. It was a time of incredible faith and vision and seeing God just do amazing things. That There were so many thousands of people who were baptized and, and so many hundreds of churches that were planted and that we were seeing Matthew 28 really become a reality in our generation. started having serious problems probably fairly early on in some respects. Uh, the whole concept of discipling, some people had marvelous experiences with that. Other people unfortunately did not. I think uh, we got into much more of a corporate mentality uh, certainly in the 90s so that uh, everything was sort of statistics. We thought that way. We compared ourselves to one another that way. I think that another element that we needed to have taken more concern about was the health of our churches and not only making sure that we were getting a church in every nation, but the, the planting of our churches not be at the expense of, uh, of the giving church. We've been through a, an upheaval that has affected nearly all of the movement, not every church, but nearly every church in one way or another. We actually had bad implementation of a number of very good things, and people got confused about that difference and assumed that the things themselves were bad or too risky to try again. And so because there were some wrong motivations for evangelism, evangelism sort of stopped for many people. Uh, discipling because that was poorly applied in some situations then it became sort of the D word that no one wanted to use whereas the concept of discipling is everywhere in the Bible. I think about all of the courageous brothers that stayed at their post and stayed in their positions even though many of them lost their support uh, they, they lost uh, they had to sacrifice tremendously but they did not quit. They kept leading their churches. I think uh, the things that God has really taught us that have been very beneficial is that we've really moved as a brotherhood from more of a military corporate model to a model of extended family and influence uh, based on expertise and relationship. I think we've really gone from one man leadership at a lot of level to a team leadership at a lot of levels that's really used more gifts to add to the mix. One of the lessons that we learned from the crisis is our need to desperately depend on God and that God is the one who gives the victory. We need to always humble ourselves before Him and depend on Him or He will humble us. As we've committed ourselves to a, a real exposition of the Scriptures, reliance upon the Scriptures, 
we have this tremendous bedrock of conviction that is happening both among repentant churches and among young people coming into the, the churches, which is now going to be able to, to lay a foundation as much more expert builders that will be able to endure the fire and be able to be exposed as being made of something much, much more sustainable because of it being based on the Word of God. So exciting a time to see the fires rekindled and rekindled not because of any one man's enthusiasm, but because of the Word of God. It's been encouraging this year to really see a, a revival, the fruits of revival, really. We've seen a lot of conversions, and one at a time, one conversation at a time, you know, one Bible talk at a time. To And then you see, you know, you started to see one baptism and fruit and joy and really uh, a, a lot of faith return, and it's really been a, a blast. We don't want people to forget the great things that God has done in our past. There are so many more wonderful, powerful, uh, meaningful, inspirational things that God has done through us uh, than any negative thing that has happened in the past. That I just take time to, to watch that just because I think it's important. Okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> When we're talking about uh, the Holy Spirit greater than our world, I think it's important to, to know what we're a part of and to celebrate what we're a part of, celebrate the connection we have to churches all over the world. There's uh, about 100,000 members of our church. We don't believe we're the only Christians in the world, but, but, but it is a unique group that we're a part of because these 100,000 uh, disciples are in 155 nations. And uh, almost uh, 640 different churches. And, and it's so cool to have that connection. There's a lot of churches that would love to have that kind of missions connection. It's so encouraging that God has blessed us with that connection to all these, all these churches around the world. And, uh, uh, you know, it, 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 is, it just makes me feel like the kingdom is so much greater than me. But as our, as our one takeaway today is when I fight the world locally, I'm helping to build the kingdom. I'm helping to win the world globally. By fighting the world locally, we win the world globally all together. Um, this video was a, a few years ago, so it's not the most up-to-date. So I want to show you a, a short two-minute clip that kind of gives you a little bit of the good news of, of what's kind of going on nowadays. Uh, before I do that, though, I, I want to uh, share one personal story just about how I feel about the kingdom. Is You know, I grew up in this church, and uh, as I watch that the, the, the kind of history that we just watched, uh, you know, I was a part of that. My, my family moved. My dad got involved with the Crossroads Ministry in, in Homestead, Florida when I was a kid. And we moved to Pueblo to be a part of a campus ministry movement church. And then we moved to Denver to be part of a discipling movement church like we saw. And we were talking about the 80s. We moved there right about then. And uh, so I feel like I've been able to watch all this happen and, and see God's spirit working through it all. And I, I really believe with all my heart that the church is better today than ever before. And it's very rare for a church to be able to pass on the faith to the next generation. It's very rare. And, and we're seeing that happen in, in our young people, in, in the people leading churches now who grew up in the church, just like I grew up in the church, that are passing it on. And I'm excited about my kids taking on the torch and, and them you know, going out into, into all the world and, and them being a part of Hope Youth Corps and going to places and doing things for God. It's so encouraging. And um, one guy uh, that... that uh, I, I just a few weeks ago, I, I read uh, a post on his website, I mean, on his Facebook page, and that's Rocky Brat. If you know, uh, if you saw Blood Brother, Blood Brother, this is the brother from uh, uh, he's a disciple in the Philadelphia church who's been over there serving in a hope, a hope uh, mission, uh, uh, a hope project there in India. But he was kind of I, I don't know if he was feeling down or what, but he po posted this. Anybody have any hardcore encouragement? Just something to really boost the joy level. Um, and he posted that, and 186 people posted replies. And these are disciples from all over the world. And I'm just reading some of these replies, and I started to cry because I was just so moved by uh, the fellowship that we're a part of. And they, <clears throat> excuse me, and just the hearts that disciples have for each other. Here's this guy serving in India, but we all, <clears throat> excuse me, we all feel that connection. And I'm just so, so grateful for that. So I'm going to watch this video, and then uh, we're going to pray for communion here in a second. It's so fulfilling to see our generation, the next generation, and to watch the new ones coming along 
that we're going to, we will take it into all the world. We're not done yet. One of the shifts we've made is enveloping this youth and family focus. It's revitalized our families. Not only do they feel hope for their kids, but they want to bring other families out to our churches. I bring to you great news about the Mexico City Church. The Lord is doing great things in China. Last year, after seven years, we finally had the first year of positive growth. Overall, in the last couple of years, the church has increased by about 200 disciples. South Asia is 5,200 disciples in seven nations. The Nairobi Church is a, has a membership of 1460, and until August this year, we've had 120 baptisms. We've seen in the last six months more than 125 souls added to his church in Kiev. Right now, we have about 300 uh, disciples in the singles ministry. It's a dynamic ministry. We've seen 19 baptisms and four restorations. We started off the year this year with 99 disciples. And so you do the math, that's about 20% growth. To God be the glory. As we read through the scriptures, we read about highs and lows, sin and repentance, victories and defeat. It's been the same with us. We're almost 100,000 disciples scattered across 150 different nations. Sinners doing their best to help reach a lost world. We've had our victories and defeats, our highs and our lows. As churches begin focusing on their 2020 goals, most of us in the ICOC see a whole new era dawning. We've dropped the hierarchy in favor of respect and influence. And we've gone from uniformity to unity. Through it all, we've maintained our zeal to preach the word and make disciples. We will continue to hold out the simple truth of the gospel as we call men and women to be disciples of Jesus. We firmly believe that our best days are in front of us, and we eagerly look forward to God doing more than we ask or imagine. These are our visions and dreams. So what does this mean for you? What can you do? Uh, just three quick things. You can pray. Uh, Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, verse 1, I urge then, first of all, that prayers and petitions and requests be made for all people. And he says, especially those in positions of authority so that the gospel can spread. Paul saw how important prayer was to the work of the gospel. So whether you can go and travel somewhere, you, we can all pray. We can all commit to pray. And, and not just pray for the disciples in all these countries, but pray for those countries, Paul says. Pray for those leaders. Know a little bit about what's going on in the world. Uh, you know, there's some people who are, are better than others at knowing what's go going on in the world. As Californians, we are well known for not knowing what's going on in the world. Have you ever seen Jay Leno as he talks to people on the street? They don't know who the vice president is and things like that. You know, let's know a little bit about our world because we are. I love being American, but America is only a couple hundred years old and, and it's not guaranteed to stay. I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God. I'm a world citizen of the kingdom of God, first and foremost. I'm proud to be American, but, but you know, and that's, I, we should see everything through that filter of our, our brothers and sisters and what they're going through. And, and there, are, there are horrible things happening right now in Syria, in Cairo, in, 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 in uh, just, just right now, the whole government of Kiev was overthrown. But it's cool because I know the, the brother and sister who lead the worship for all of Russia, Masha and Vanya, and I sent them an email. Are you okay? We're praying for you. Yes, and, and it was so cool her response. She said, God's hand is moving. God's hand is moving through this. People are becoming disciples. It's, it's good. You know, it's good for the kingdom of God, she said. So, amen, good, you know. But, but, but having that kind of connection, a couple of practical things. I mean, I podcast the nightly news, so I don't have to watch it. I don't have to be anywhere. It just comes to my iPod. There's no commercials, because if you ever watch the nightly news, you know it's like half commercials for, for uh, medication. <laughs> and uh, so I podcast the news. There's no commercials. It takes me 15 minutes. I watch it while I do the dishes. Uh, I, I podcast uh, Meet the Press, which is a, a weekly thing, and it just kind of lets you know what's going on in the pol political world. You might watch Fox, all, Fox News all the time like Jackie does. Whatever it is, the way, <laughs> however it is, <laughs> however it is, just know a little bit about what's going on in the world around you and pray for the brothers and sisters. Amen. Second thing, preach. We can reach all nations right here in L.A. You realize that? I mean, what a socially diverse city this is. I mean, in my community, I live in South Torrance, and there's so many people from India, so many people from Japan, so many people from Persia. I mean, there's so many people from all these different... Uh, I've got... So, so many times I can... I, I feel intimidated by people if they're not kind of the same as me, and yet I need to push past that and, and, and love 
conquers all. Love never fails. I need to try to figure out how do I have these people into my home? How do we reach these communities? Because through that, we can reach the whole world. And of course, on our campuses, obviously. And God might call you to go somewhere. God might call you to some city or some mission field. Uh, You know, I appreciate those who are willing to do that. And the last thing is pitch in. How can you help? How can you contribute? We have special missions coming up in a few weeks. These third world nations depend on us. Uh, It's important that you pitch in for that. Pitch in for Hope Worldwide and the work work that Hope is doing. And when you you fight the world locally, even in terms of serving the community, you you win the world globally. Because Hope Worldwide is, is... is built up by these projects that we're doing every weekend that people like Dave and Mary and, and Chip, Chip and Lorena Pusateri, you know, they, they put a lot of work into planning those events. Let's show up and serve and let's pitch in and God will be glorified through that. Uh, as we pray for communion, I want us to meditate on this verse. It says in uh, Revelation 5 verse 9, And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God's persons, for God, persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Revelation 5. This is a picture of the Global World Summit we had uh, a couple summers ago. And, uh, you know, this is why Jesus died, this verse says. It was so that the gospel could go to all, all nations. And we're going to all be together in heaven forever. Let's pray. God, thank you that with his blood, Jesus uh, purchase for us, uh, purchase us for you, rather. And uh, God, thank you that we can join uh, that multitude the Bible describes in heaven that no one could count from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation, all together around the throne, praising God forever and, and, and building the kingdom, continuing to build the kingdom in the next life uh, and, and being together with you forever. Thank you that only because of Jesus' body and his blood can we have this relationship with you. And uh, thank you so much for him. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.